to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Thoracic Surgery Residents Association podcast series. My name is Ruben Nava, and I'm one of the Thoracic Surgery Fellows at the Washington University School of Medicine. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Brian Myers about his thoughts on lung volume reduction surgery. Based on the next scenario, we'll be discussing patient selection, pre-op workup, intra-op strategies, and post-op management of these patients. Dr. Myers is currently the Patrick and Joy Williamson Professor of Surgery at Barnes and Jewish Hospital and Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Myers also serves as the Chief of the Section of Thoracic Surgery in the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery, and he has been recently named the Chair of the American Board of Thoracic Surgery. Dr. Myers, thank you for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. I look forward to it. So we're going to start by um, talking about a scenario. This is a 60-year-old man with advanced emphysema that has been treated with inhaled steroids and bronchodilators for several years. He lives independently but has lifestyle-limiting dyspnea. His past medical history includes hypertension and history of spontaneous pneumothorax two years ago that resolved after the placement of a chest tube, and he has been referred for evaluation for lung volume reduction surgery. So, Dr. Myers, based on this scenario, what are the specific details within the patient's history that you are looking for? Well, I think the uh, first thing that I would try to characterize are, uh, are the uh, question of whether or not uh, his uh, maximal medical therapy has been achieved. And with that in mind, uh, we always uh, involve uh, pulmonary physicians, uh, usually uh, selected from a, a narrow cohort of pulmonary physicians that we work with regularly to make sure that they have oversight over uh, the medical uh, therapy and, uh, and they can assure us that uh, all uh, conservative uh, strategies have been employed. Uh, the optimization of medications, of uh, bronchodilators, uh, steroids, uh, uh, and exercise therapy as well. So we want to make sure that surgery is viewed as the uh, icing on the cake uh, in their therapy and, and not uh, a, a premature choice. Okay. So, how would you proceed with your initial workup in this patient? What a specific lab, laboratory or imaging test would you want at this time? It's interesting. I feel like I'm in the uh, oral boards examination in yeah. reverse. Uh, so, <laughs> I guess turnabout is fair pay. Uh, so, so, uh, so uh, I think that I'd be most interested in putting a number uh, on the severity of this patient's emphysema. And, and for us, you know, the, the two best numbers that we have on the pulmonary function tests are the FEV1 and the DLCO. And I think uh, if I knew those numbers, I, I could uh, pretty quickly characterize those patients into one of three groups. Uh, one group would be too good for lung volume reduction surgery. And, and, and when the uh, PFTs are, are too well preserved, then we would just uh, recommend exercise therapy and continued medical therapy. Uh, and then there's a other group of too bad where uh, they are so severely uh, 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 affected by the emphysema that the best strategy would be uh, either uh, transplant or palliative uh, uh, care and then a sweet spot in between. Okay. All right. So and from an evaluation standpoint, 
what would uh, you think are the general indications uh, from a patient perspective, uh, for example, smoking cessation, ideal body weight, etc.? Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, smoking cessation is an absolute must. We, we wouldn't really evaluate that patient uh, until they had uh, achieved uh, smoking cessation and wouldn't consider uh, doing the operation on them unless they'd been uh, smoke-free you know, for more than six months. Uh, I, I tend to be a trusting person, but uh, yeah. uh, the pulmonologists that I work with are often uh, checking urine cotinines uh, and, uh, on a, a, a surprise basis, you know, almost like random drug screening, uh, just to make sure that the patients are adherent to the uh, non-smoking strategy. You also want to minimize steroids to the degree yeah. that that's possible, although some patients uh, uh, become steroid dependent uh, when they get uh, very advanced with their uh, emphysema. Okay. And then uh, the, uh, uh, the other uh, uh, question is a, a result of the uh, uh, cause of emphysema is smoking and the uh, high association of, uh, between smoking and uh, coronary artery disease. So these patients often need to be uh, screened for, for that uh, uh, class of comorbidities as well. Okay. And how about an ideal body weight? Is that um, uh, limit, limited in the body weight that you would like to see in these patients or... Well, it's funny because uh, as time has gone by, uh, you know, we used to have to deal, you know, with uh, uh, a very low body weight in patients with emphysema. They tend to have a decreased appetite. They uh, feel more short of breath when they're full, uh, and often those patients are underweight. Uh, although, uh, as uh, you know, consistent with trends in the United States, that seems to be less of a problem. And uh, we're often we're dealing with the other extreme and and, and trying to you know, set a, uh, a target weight uh, or, or target BMI for these patients to reach in order to uh, uh, make the operation uh, uh, as safe as possible and give them the opportunity to get the most benefit from the surgery once they're, uh, once they're uh, uh, completed with the operation. Okay. Um, one of the things that we, uh, uh, we didn't talk about before was what kind of imaging would you uh, uh, one in these kinds of patients when you evaluate them? I think most people begin with a chest x-ray and, and the kind of things they're looking for are the hyperexpansion of the lungs, uh, you know, the, uh, the flattened diaphragms on the uh, PA uh, view on the chest x-ray uh, and uh, uh, increased uh, uh, diameter uh, uh, of the chest on the lateral. You know, the, you have a much uh, a wider uh, AP diameter. There's often a, a, a retrosternal airspace on the on the chest x-ray on the lateral chest x-ray but uh, but increasingly uh, chest x-rays are are kind of passe and uh, and most people go to a CAT scan so yeah. we're often looking for uh, uh, CT imaging and then possibly uh, uh, depending on the individual surgeon and pulmonologists uh, habits uh, there may be some nuclear medicine imaging that might uh, uh, guide the selection process as well okay okay so what are the, uh, the things that you look for from an anatomic radiographic standpoint to, uh, to make sure that these patients will be a candidate for surgery? Well, so uh, number one, you want to make sure that they have emphysema. You know, there are a lot of patients who, who might have smoked and have you know, some uh, uh, degree of COPD, but you want to see that they have emphysema with uh, uh, destruction of the alveolar air spaces uh, and uh, hyperexpansion. Uh, and, and generally, if you're going to plan to uh, do a volume reduction operation and you're going to resect parts of the lung to make the other parts better, uh, you want to make sure that they're, they have heterogeneous emphysema. Uh, and, uh, and most typically uh, and most reliably uh, to benefit, 
uh, you're going to have uh, apical uh, predominance of the mm -hmm. destruction. So I think that classic uh, kind of upper lobe de dominant uh, destruction of emphysema would be what you'd look for in the CT scan. And then there's other things you can look for. I mean, you, you, you nowadays, uh, you can uh, do some screening for coronary artery disease just based on the pattern of calcification. Mm -hmm. You can also look for uh, some suspicion for uh, pleural disease. You know, if you have pleural thickening, that might be a, a hint of some sort of previous uh, inflammatory uh, pleural disease, and that might uh, uh, make you a little bit more wary about addressing that side. Okay. Well, we um, previously talked about putting these patients in three different categories depending on you, you said if they were too good to have this kind of surgery or if they were too bad. In terms of a physiologic standpoint, what are the PFTs values that will place these patients in, uh, in the right you know, place for, for, uh, for having surgery? Well, I, you know, every patient is an individual, and so you, you can't have a, a, a cutoff without considering other factors. But you know, with that you know, caveat in mind, uh, if people are greater than 40%, you know, an FEV1 and TLCO, uh, I think that they still have uh, uh, plenty of opportunity to improve uh, with pulmonary uh, rehab uh, and, and just you know, general medical care. And so, so it may be that for that group of patients, unless they have something pretty unique like a, a giant bulla, uh, uh, then I think that I would hold off on lung volume reduction surgery for the greater than 40 club. Uh, and then at the other end of the spectrum, when they're less than 20, uh, they start to look a lot like uh, lung transplant candidates to me. Uh, there, there are exceptions, and there are some patients with the anatomy uh, 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 that would suggest, uh, even with a very low DLCO, that they're going to have a durable benefit with lung volume reduction surgery. Uh, but I, I would say that the sweet spot for uh, volume reduction surgery is uh, in the 20 to 40 club. Okay. Okay. So what would you think will be the uh, general contraindications for uh, these kind of surgeries? Well, certainly, uh, uh, you, you, in order to reduce the uh, morbidity of the operation, you want to have, a, as much as you can predict, a free pleural space. And so somebody who's had a pleurodesis, uh, I, I would be very wary about doing uh, that side. You might consider a unilateral operation if, uh, if they are free on the other side. Uh, but going in uh, you know, with a fragile, uh, uh, destroyed lung tissue, if you have to do a, a lysis of adhesions, you're really setting yourself up for a bad air leak situation and, and possibly a, a, a durable relationship between that patient and a chest tube. So I would hold off for pleurodesis. I would hold off for uh, unilateral uh, thoracic radiation. Uh, 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 if there had been a history of an empyema on one side, that would be uh, something to hold off on. Okay. Uh, I think those, those are kind of local factors in the, in the chest itself that would make me wary. Okay. Um you know, throughout the years, there has been different surgical approaches for these uh, kind of procedures. Can you, can you talk briefly about, what, uh, about the history of uh, the disease and how his, uh, surgical approaches have developed? And uh, then, you know, tell me what is your preferred surgical approach for, for these kinds of surgeries? Yeah, sure. Well, they, probably the original work that was done by uh, Brantigan in the 50s that inspired Dr. Cooper uh, was done through a, a thoracotomy, and it was a unilateral operation. Uh, the operation that Dr. Cooper uh, pioneered in the early to mid-90s uh, uh, was through a median sternotomy, uh, and through that one incision, you could access both pleural spaces uh, and uh, have a, uh, a bilateral upper lobe uh, uh, operation uh, uh, with a single incision 
performing it sequentially uh, uh, through a little plural opening uh, medially. Uh, but I think gradually, uh, uh, as time has gone by, uh, there's been a, a, a pretty good embrace of a video thoracoscopic approach. And so for right now, um, my approach would be uh, through a uh, inframammary uh, uh, bilateral uh, uh, anterior incision. The incision can be uh, four or five centimeters in, in length, uh, and, uh, and a single chest tube site can offer a camera port. And, and you can pretty much uh, do what you need to do through that uh, very minimally invasive approach. Okay. Um, once uh, these patients leave the OR, uh, where do they go post-op? Do they go to the ICU? Do they need to go to the ICU? Or do they have to go to a, um, um, a different uh, uh, care setting? Well, I don't think they need to go to the ICU. They can go to an observation unit because uh, the vast majority of them will not be ventilated. And uh, although they'll have an art line for checking blood gases, uh, they shouldn't be on pressors or, or, uh, or uh, vasoactive drugs. And so an observation unit or a thoracic uh, step-down unit would usually be sufficient. Uh, you really want to have them go to the same place every time so that the care team uh, that are taking care of them are used to taking care of patients with, uh, you know, with this operation. It's not at all uncommon uh, that patients in the recovery room or in the OU might develop hypercarbia that would uh, cause other uh, uh, caregivers to freak out. You know, mm -hmm. you know when you have yeah. PCO2s of 60 or 70 uh, in a patient who looks comfortable uh, and is not uh, dyspneic and not working hard to breathe, you know, that, that would uh, lead to an inappropriate decision to intubate in some uh, uh, care units. But if, uh, if you've got a team that are used to taking care of uh, uh, patients with advanced emphysema and are patient and persistent, uh, then you can avoid some uh, inappropriate uh, uh, rash decisions in uh, in the immediate perioperative time frame. Okay. Uh, what would be your uh, chest tube management in these kind of patients? Well, usually uh, it would be water seal all the time. You know, the, okay. the, uh, contrary to patients who have more normal elasticity in their lung, uh, even if they have air leaks, uh, it's actually kind of hard for these patients to collapse their lungs. As you call the you know, the problem with emphysema is exhaling. And so uh, if you have a, a, a bilateral chest tubes uh, on water seal, even if there's an air leak, uh, uh, you know, the, it's, it's unusual to have a major uh, collapse of their lung. Uh, and uh, on the contrary, if you put them on suction and there's a small air leak, uh, the, uh, the nature of that lung is that you can have quite a bit of uh, loss of air uh, uh, through uh, even a small pleural defect uh, if you put them on suction. So usually it's, uh, it's uh, uh, a water seal uh, from start to finish, uh, and okay. in the small event that there might uh, require suction, you want to start very low. You want to start with the minimal suction in order okay. to get the desired expansion of the lung without causing too much of a air leak and, and propagating or, or prolonging the air leak. Okay. And what would you say uh, are the most common complications um, uh, in the early post-op uh, course of these patients? Well, probably the, you know, the, the most common would be what I just mentioned of air leak. I mean, if you look at uh, reasons for uh, prolonged hospital stay in lung volume reduction patients, uh, persistent air leak is number one on the list. Uh, uh, you know, and like our other uh, patients uh, uh, that we care for with uh, lung cancer, uh, atrial fibrillation is probably up there as well. Those are the two main issues, uh, followed, you know, about, you know, kind of in descending order with uh, uh, pneumonia uh, uh, or, uh, or, or uh, other uh, kind of plural complications, uh, 
but uh, but you know, the, the, and then you know, beyond that is other uh, uh, complications that are brought on by their comorbidities. You know, okay. their their uh, smoking, possibly coronary artery disease. But I, you know, air leaks and AFib would be right up there at the top. Okay. All right. Um, what are the long-term outcomes in this group of patients? Well, in gen in general, that you know, the, there's a uh, a great uh, uh, predictable improvement in their lung capacity and their uh, physical uh, capabilities. Uh, you know, the, there's a, a, a notable and durable improvement in their health-related quality of life. It's uh, self-reported by the patient. Uh, for a bilateral operation, the uh, FEV1 uh, often will improve by as much as 50%, uh, sometimes even more, in uh, patients with appropriate anatomy. And the durability of that uh, uh, improvement uh, can be, you know, uh, uh, on average about five years before they would uh, have uh, some uh, emphysema-related declines back to their baseline status. So it's a, it's a very uh, durable uh, improvement, uh, but it's not permanent. It, you know, they still have emphysema, mm -hmm. and they're going to still have a decline, just as they would have a decline if they hadn't had the operation. Okay. You touched brief, briefly before about the patients that were too bad to under, undergo these, this kind of surgery. Uh, so when are these patients, or when do these patients should be evaluated for lung transplant? Well, I think anytime the FEV1 and the DLCO start getting down below 25%, uh, we tend to have a dual evaluation. And, uh, and so uh, we will, uh, the, the uh, pulmonologist that I work most closely with for lung volume reduction surgery is also a member of our lung transplant team, as I am as well. And so uh, both of us can, uh, can have kind of an insight into what's best for the patient. We're not trying to compete with one program versus the other. We're trying to make the best fit for, for the patient. Uh, and I think that, uh, but, but anytime somebody has emphysema uh, and their uh, FEV1 or DLCO starts to approach 20%, uh, then they're, uh, they're uh, worthy of at least having the discussion about transplant versus lung volume reduction surgery. In some patients, uh, they might be candidates for both. And, and uh, we've, we've uh, looked at that as other centers have looked at that and oftentimes, uh, a reasonable solution is to, uh, to go ahead with lung volume reduction surgery as it doesn't seem to uh, uh, close any uh, doors or burn any bridges for subsequent transplantation. And it might uh, hold off uh, the need for all the uh, immunosuppressive medications and, and the uh, door that gets open for complications of those medications. So, so a, a good strategy for someone who's dual eligible might be lung volume reduction surgery, uh, uh, seeing how much it does and how long it lasts, and then consideration for transplant once the effects of the lung volume reduction surgery seem to have worn off. Okay. Well, it seems that we uh, exhausted this scenario. Is there anything else that you would like to comment? No, I think that these patients are, are, are greatly helped by their surgery. Uh, they're often uh, uh, hard to find. You know, they're just the combination of, uh, of uh, uh, the severity of disease, the, uh, the geometry or the anatomy of the disease and the freedom from uh, the comorbidities you know, makes these patients uh, uh, a bit difficult to, uh, to locate. Uh, but once you find them and get a chance to uh, offer them this therapy, uh, they're extremely grateful and they, they really do well uh, after a, a lung volume reduction operation. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Myers. And um, I'm not supposed to give you any feedback, so... Uh, you're going to have your results pretty soon. So thank you so much for your time again, and um, um, 
uh, we'll see you next time. My pleasure, and I look forward to uh, seeing how this is uh, uh, regarded uh, by the audience. Thank, Thank you. you.